0: Well, hello, everybody, and I'm delighted to be speaking on one of my most favorite subjects, Digging for Truth, Archaeology and the Bible. So we're looking at this subject. What is it that fascinates me and others? Well, one of the key things is, is that the historical facts that we find uh, present in the Bible can be proven by things that have been found by archaeologists over the centuries. But the key element that we want to bring out is is that there's always a purpose in the things that we find in the Bible, the characters, the events that we see taking place. It's always to do with God's plan of salvation for his people. And today we're going to be having a look at three key events in the history of Israel, involving the kingdom of Egypt, the kingdom of Assyria, and the kingdom uh, or the rulership, of Rome and then we're going to be finishing off by having a look at how that the hope of the Bible is open to all of us through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and he still carries out uh, God's work and plan of salvation uh, in this earth. So we're going to start off by having a look at the time of Egypt. You may know that the children of Israel went down into Egypt um, because of a great famine that was in the land and Joseph Um, One of the principal figures at that time was well-respected by the kings of Egypt. But we read in Exodus chapter 1 that things had gone wrong. The children of Israel were multiplying and the Egyptian kings had started to worry about the number of these immigrants who were in their country and worried that one day they would overthrow them. We read in Exodus chapter 1 And verse 8, it says, There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, that's been a very curious expression because how could they not know Joseph when we read the biblical record uh, of what he did through God in saving the people uh, from the famine? We recall that he was able to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and rightfully predicted through God that there would be seven years of famine. And so they prepared for that through seven years of plenty by building big storehouses. Well, the reason that we believe that this king did not know Joseph is, is that during the time of Joseph was the Hyksos kings, as we see from the history of the Egyptians. They were nomadic kings who had conquered Egypt for that time period. However, they were overthrown by the normal pharaohs of, of Egypt, the kings and the 18th dynasty was established in the time of Exodus. And many scholars believe that this was the I. And so that makes sense for us, uh, that they didn't know Joseph because they were from a different uh, people living in the same country. And so they said, let us deal despitefully with them, set taskmasters over them and afflict them, and let us make them slaves so they can build our treasure cities of Python, and Ramses and build um, the pyramids. They were a people that were obsessed with the afterlife and planned for it their entire lives. Now one of the key elements that we learn here is, is that God hears the cry of his people and he's keen to save them from this physical affliction. But more importantly God is very keen to save them spiritually. Because we read in Ezekiel chapter 20, and I'll turn that up for us, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20 um, and verse 5. We read what had happened to the children of Israel, because this was far more deadly in the eyes of God. Ezekiel chapter 20. And verse five, say to them, thus saith the Lord God, on the day which I choose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I raised my hand in an oath, saying, I am the Lord your God. So that verse is telling us that God needed to explain to them that he was God. They had somehow forgotten this. It goes on to say. Verse eight, but they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not cast away all the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and my anger against them. And so it seems that what happened is, is this, that the Israelites had started to serve the gods of Egypt. And if they continued in that way, that would damage their possibility of eternal salvation in God's kingdom. So God works out not only a physical salvation from the land of Egypt, but a spiritual one as well. And that helps us to explain how he did it. And we may be familiar with the 10 plagues that God sent. And you might think, why did God send these plagues when he could have just, with all his power, just extracted them at will? Well, the key element here is, is to demonstrate to his people that he is the only true God. And that through these plagues, he was discrediting some of the key figures uh, in the kingdom of Egypt. Now we were just going to re- recall the first one, where the waters of Egypt turned to blood. The river Nile, the great source of power from Egypt. That was such an important facet to the Egyptians. The disease on livestock We'll have a little look at that one. Then we're going to have a look at darkness, the ninth plague, and ultimately the death of the firstborn, the last plague that convinced Pharaoh to finally let God's people go back to Israel. So we're just going to have a look at a few of the gods of Egypt. You could spend many, many hours looking at this, but we're going to have a look at Sobek, who was the god of the Nile. And his job was specifically to protect the Nile. And that's why he has this alligator head or crocodile head. So when the Nile turned to blood, it was clear that that God had no power to protect the waters of Egypt. Isis, a very important Roman and Egyptian goddess throughout history. She has horns of a cow. She is the wife of Osiris a very important principal figure in Egypt in Egyptian in religion and she's the mother of Horus that we'll have a look at in a couple of moments she's a cow why because cows were associated with fertility they were important crucial animals for the glory of the kingdom not sure many people would like to be associated with a cow today it's interesting how things have changed But by having the cows and the cattle of Egypt have these diseases and many of them to pass away, she would have been discredited as the principal God of protection. Ra, the creator God, a very important God in Egyptian religion. Pharaoh was said to be the manifestation of Ra on the earth. And he carries with him this big sun disk on the top of his head. The ninth plague, saved until one of the last plagues, made the country dark in the middle of the day. This God would have been completely discredited in the eyes of the Egyptians, but more importantly, in the eyes of God's people. And finally, Horus, who was a protector God. He was there to specifically protect Pharaoh's household, the firstborn, the new Pharaoh at some point. When we had the death of the firstborn he would have been discredited and there you can see uh, the famous eye of horus the hawk was unable to protect pharaoh's house and so the people are let go and there was a great rejoicing at leaving that place of egypt and heading towards the promised land in the stele of menepta uh, Meneptah is from the 19th dynasty. He makes this observation. He says, Israel, a people without a state, or Israel, a wandering people, it can be translated. So, this would have been an amazing thing for people to see this people wandering um, through the wilderness. Now, why was it that the Bible claims they took 40 years to make that journey? Well, sadly, as ezekiel mentioned they continued to hark back to the gods of egypt even though they had seen the wonderful miracles that had been conducted by god in bringing them out of egypt he even mentions that they made a golden calf thinking back to isis and the gods of egypt so that people were stuck in the wilderness for 40 years before being allowed finally to enter into the promised land and here it is we can see mount sinai down here where moses received the ten commandments um i've actually climbed up mount sinai to see the sunrise um i probably wouldn't say that it's that worthwhile doing if i'm honest but again when you go there you can see that it's a place that you wouldn't want to spend much time in it's cold it's barren and the fine particles of dust and yet that's where the children of israel found themselves through disobedience and through that experience they were they were to try to overcome their temptations and focus on worshiping god and finally they entered into the promised land through the river jordan and there's a lovely parable Um, of the River Jordan, which is all about how the normal course of things, the water starting off on Mount Hermon, coming down into the Sea of Galilee in this region just here, uh, which would have been teeming with life, and ultimately, though, entering the River Jordan, which means descender, leading to the Dead Sea. And that paints the story of our lives. We start off full of energy in in Mount Hermon, and then suddenly... After some years, we, we live out our lives in the Sea of Galilee, but enter the descender and we ultimately pass away. But here, the waters of the River Jordan are stopped and the people go into the land. And it's a demonstration that belief in God stops the natural course of things, that we can live forever in God's kingdom. So the people came into the land and they had to conquer the nations that were in the land. You can have a look at Jericho, which is still there today. We're going to focus, though, on one place. The place, the Bible claims, where God has chosen to put his name. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 17. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, where thou hast made for thee to dwell, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which you have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. And Deuteronomy in those passages there talks about this place being a fundamental focus of God. And that um, is a pomegranate. And it's uh, it says on the outside in Hebrew, a gift to the temple of Yah, Yah being another name uh, for God. And so this was the focus that they were coming back into a place that God had prepared for his people. Now, as we read through the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, we see that this place was Jerusalem. And they captured it and then they lost it again. And it wasn't until the time of the kings in King David did the city finally fall um, to the Israelites. It was under the control of the Jebusites, and they had called it Jebus. And uh Kathleen Kenyon, famous archeologist in Israel, uh, uncovered Jebus Jerusalem in the 1960s. And uh, the red you see on the bricks here is the bricks that have been uncovered uh, by Kathleen. So what is it that happened to capture this city? Well, King David said, whoever gets up the gutter and smites the Jebusites that I hated the David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. So David said, whoever conquers this city, I will make him the general of my army. And the Bible tells us that it was Joab who climbed up, who climbed up the, uh, the watercourse into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. And so Joab became the captain of David's army. And so Jerusalem fell to King David and the city became the capital of the kingdom of Israel. That's a modern day picture of Jerusalem today. And this is the temple that David and Solomon built. Now, David prepared all the material and it was Solomon who built it. And it's this piece here. So we're now going to move on in time and have a think about the kingdom of Assyria. Because the kingdom of Assyria was coming to invade the land. And sadly, the kingdom of Israel had a civil war and it split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. And we're going to pick up the story when the Assyrians, not content with conquering just Israel, are now coming to Judah and they're going to attack Uh, The cities of this kingdom. The Assyrians themselves were a very barbaric people. History attests that they were a brutal nation, that they enjoyed nothing more than killing animals like lions to show their strength. They treated prisoners very poorly and used to drag them behind their chariots for sport. That was the people that were coming, a real source of fear at that time. So this is the period that we're looking at on this timeline. We're looking here after the Assyrian captivity of this northern kingdom of Israel. And we are here in the time of King Hezekiah uh, of the southern kingdom. And so what does the Assyrians do? Well, they enter the land from the north and they focus their attention on two cities. One, Lachish, the other, Jerusalem. And what happened to this fortress town um, of Lachish? Well, in 2 Chronicles 32, it tells us that they laid siege against it. So even though Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has sent armies to Jerusalem, he himself is laying siege against this city of Lachish. What happens? Well, Lachish is put to siege and you can see here on his relief that he made in his throne room after this event, people fleeing the city. But unfortunately, they are being captured and they are being stuck on spikes. That's what happened to prisoners by the Assyrians. And then Lachish falls. And we can see here. People being skinned alive by the Assyrians, a barbaric people executing prisoners, light left and center. And there he is, Sennacherib, king of the universe, he calls himself as all the the booty of Lachish uh, is passed before him. And you can go and see those rock reliefs um, in the British Museum today to commemorate by Sennacherib the destruction of this city. But why was it that Lachish falls while Jerusalem, that we're going to have a look in a couple of moments, is preserved? Well, Micah explains to us this reason. So turn with me, if you will, to Micah, the prophecy of Micah in chapter 1. It's not the easiest prophecy to find. It's just before the New Testament in the Minor Prophets. And Micah explains to us why it was that this city of Lachish was destroyed. Micah chapter one. Verse 13. O inhabitant of Lachish harnessed the chariot to the swift steeds, she was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. So in Micah chapter one and verse thirteen, we see there that Lachish was quite a different city from Jerusalem. The people who would be fleeing would be presented with a choice. You can go to Jerusalem, where King Hezekiah is is ruling, and they are worshipping God there. Or you can go to the, of Lach- the the city of Lachish, where anything goes. You can worship yourself there. And the people who went to Lachish put their trust in their peace treaty with Egypt. And they thought that the Egyptians would protect them. Even the Assyrians said, you cannot rely on the Egyptians to save you. And so it was that this city was destroyed Because, again, they were focusing on serving themselves, serving idols, and not serving God. But if you'd made the choice to go to Jerusalem, what happens then? Well, many, many people made that choice to go to Jerusalem. And then you had this wide wall that was made through the city. People's houses were broken down so that this wall could be strengthened and to allow more people into the city. No planning permission required here. The Assyrians are coming and we need more space. And that's been uncovered um, even today. Isaiah 22 verse 10 talks about not breaking down the walls to fortify the wall of defense. Hezekiah also made a conduit, a water course to be able to supply the city uh, with water during the siege. It's very famous. You can go there today and walk through Hezekiah's conduit that starts off this little Gaihon spring ending up in the pool of Siloam and you can see when you walk down the tunnel the chisel marks that move this way and that way as they met in the center together an incredible feat of engineering even by today's standards they had no time they started off in two different ends at once and somehow met in the middle. King Sennacherib talks about Hezekiah, the king of Judah, being trapped like a caged bird. But yet, on Sennacherib's prison, which is in the British Museum, there's no record of Jerusalem falling. The Bible explains to us very clearly why. Isaiah tells us that God will defend Jerusalem. Defending it, he will preserve it. And in 2 Kings chapter 19, we find out that Despite all of the work and preparatory work that Hezekiah had done, God was going to show him that salvation was going to come without the need for any human intervention. That army, behold, in 2 Kings 19 and verse 35, in the morning, they were all dead. A plague of some sort had ravished the camp of the Assyrians and killed every single one of them so Sennacherib returned back to Assyria, having been defeated by the small kingdom of Judah. And the Bible tells us that ultimately Sennacherib was killed by his two firstborn sons while he was worshipping his own God, who was not able to save him. And the annals of Assyria tell us that it was Hadon who became the ruler after Sennacherib. And it's strangely quiet about the regicide of the two older sons. So moving on in time, the children of Israel returned back from um, Babylon, uh, which they were captive in. And we remember that after the Assyrians, the Babylonians came, and ultimately uh, Judah went into captivity again because they too had descended into idolatry. But God, again, was working out a way to bring them back. And when the kingdom of Babylon was destroyed, and there's much evidence to to show us the the power and the might of the kings of Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And Cyrus the Persian allowed all the captives in Babylon to go home if they so wished. And the cylinder of Cyrus is, is known as the first treaty of human rights, the right to return to your own homeland. And that's why um, there's a model of it in the United Nations uh, in New York. The real version of course is in the British Museum. Um, British were very good at acquiring uh, these kind of things over the years, as you know. So we're gonna move on in time now and have a look at our third kingdom which was the kingdom or the rulership of Rome. Now, when the people returned, they built uh, a temple again. It's called the Second Temple Period. And this was an amazing structure. Um, King Herod, uh, in the times of the New Testament, massively expanded the temple platform. And it was said that he had overlaid it with gold. He had made it the most stunning building to look at. And that's where it was located. Um, and that's a picture of modern Jerusalem today in the same place as the Dome of the Rock. Why Jerusalem is such a contentious place even today. But one thing that they did was is that they put up what were called middle walls of partition. Now under the Old Testament, the stranger, those who were non jews were able to come into um, it was called covenant relationship. They were able to become followers of God. And there was always the provision made for them. And the examples are very clear in the Old Testament of people uh, who, who did that. But in the New Testament, they built these things called the middle wall of partition that were there to partic- to specifically keep the Gentiles out. And there was a stone made. And that stone which has been found says, if anybody goes past here who is a Gentile, then you're responsible for your own life. And it was the one area where the Romans allowed the Jews to put someone to death without reference to the Roman courts. But what does the Lord Jesus Christ say? Well... The Apostle Paul explains to us in Ephesians chapter two, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, the focus here is not on the physical salvation. It's on the spiritual. The Apostle Paul says, Jesus is our peace and hath made both one. And he's broken down the middle wall of partition. There's nothing now that stops us from coming into the temple of God. Therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also build it together. And so the emphasis here is not on the physical building at all. It's on the people. They're the focus of God's attention. They are the ones that he wants to save and bring into new Jerusalem, into his kingdom. And so this building had lost its purpose. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples in Matthew 24, See these things, verily I say unto you, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be broken down. And when the disciples heard that, they couldn't believe it. Surely this is God's temple. Who could destroy it? It's such a beautiful building. But that prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70, when the Romans came first. Vespasian, the Romanic general who was to become Caesar, and then ultimately by his son Titus. We have an incredible verse um, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 21 and verse 20 and 21. The followers of Jesus would have understood this In verse 20 of Luke 21, it says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter in. Well, what does it mean? Well, you might say, well, that's not particularly useful. Jesus is saying that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it's going to fall. Isn't that obvious? No, Jesus says, when you see that, then know it's time to flee. And when we see history, that was fascinating prophecy that we had in Luke chapter 21, because Vespasian put the city to siege, but then had to return to Rome uh, to conquer Vitilius, a Germanic legionnaire of the north who had sacked Rome. And so when everybody else was celebrating in Jerusalem, this was the time, the Lord Jesus Christ says, is the time to flee. And so it was that those who believed in Jesus fled the city and escaped what happened next when Titus came back and the siege was put in array and the temple was burnt. And all those stones were ripped up as they tried to get the gold as it fell between the cracks, fulfilling Jesus's prophecy in Matthew. And there you can go to Rome today and you can see the Arch of Titus that commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the carrying away of the lampstand or the menorah and the booty from the temple. So we've come to an end of our talk because what we hopefully have seen is through the different kingdoms that have interacted with the children of Israel is is that God has always been there to save them spiritually so that he can give them everlasting life In his kingdom, we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was the chief cornerstone, not of a physical building, but of a spiritual one and wants all of us to become part of his kingdom. In Galatians chapter three, in verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. If you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. There was that wonderful hope that is opened up to all of us. That we too, as we travel through our lives, that through the waters of baptism, we can become part of God's kingdom. We can have a place in that beautiful city. Of New Jerusalem can be given the gift of everlasting life through the work of the Lord Jesus and his death and his resurrection. Our last quotation, taking us back to New Jerusalem that will be established in the day of God's kingdom. Isaiah chapter two and verse two says, "And it shall come to pass in the last days." That the mount of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A picture of righteousness and everlasting peace when God's kingdom comes. So we very much hope that you found it interesting uh, this morning as we've had a look at history and we prayed earnestly that God will be with us all as we read his word and brings about his plan and purpose and act of salvation with mankind. Even so come Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for listening.